Today we're continuing our series on what Jesus believed, what Jesus believed, and we started with what he believed about God, what he believed about himself, and today we're going to talk about what Jesus believes about the Bible, about the Bible. Now again, I know that it's a little bit of a stretch for people to say, well, what do you mean Jesus believed how could Jesus believe if Jesus is God? That means Jesus has faith in something. How could Jesus have faith in something if he's God? I'm confused. And as I've said the last couple of weeks, not only does Jesus have the nature of deity, but Jesus has the nature of humanity. We're appreciative of his deity in churches, but we don't often understand his humanity. So when we look at him, not only as God, but also as a person, we can see his beliefs come shining through the pages of the Gospels. And he believes some things that ruffle people's feathers and uh, that get people uh, shocked. Uh, he, he says believes things that ha cause masses of people to follow him. And he believes things that cause people to dislike him and even want to get rid of him. But you can see his beliefs, again, shining through the pages of the Gospels. Now, it's a little tricky when we talk about what Jesus believed about the Bible, because what Jesus believed about the Bible is in the Bible. Uh, if we could have the next, uh, the next slide there. What he believed about the Bible is in the Bible. So where do we see the things that Jesus believed? Where in the Bible? Tell me. In the Gospels, name me some Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? So, but those are part of the Bible. So here we have uh, a question that, well, hold on a second. Uh, if what Jesus believed is in the Bible, uh, and what he believed about the Bible is in the Bible, well, you really have to come to a place where you actually trust what the Bible says. And in particular, in this case, you trust what the Gospels say. Uh, when I say the Gospels, I say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from the Bible's New Testament. Now, uh, without going into huge detail on this, uh, and I've done this in the past, you can find things on our Facebook page, our website, about why the Gospels are trustworthy. You have to come to a place where you, you pick them up and you except that what they're reporting to you about Jesus's life is accurate. And this, for some, is a stretch, and uh, that's good that it's a stretch for you, because with the Gospels, you're very, very fortunate in that you can indeed come to a place where you pick them up and trust what they say. Uh, C.S. Lewis, whose movie you'll watch, is one person who came to that conclusion. Because fortunately, with the Gospels, you can take that information, you can go all the way back, right to the beginning, you can build a case to say that the information that we hold in our hands today about Matthew, or that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John wrote, is in fact what happened. We can build a case to say that the information hasn't changed. We can build a case to say that that information was so explosive that it was being preached on within the lifetime of the people who experienced it, both friend and foe. 
So uh, the early church was about the business of preaching what Matthew and Mark and Luke and John said about Jesus, while people who could oppose it were still alive. And we have, so, we have an avalanche of ancient manuscripts that we can build this case to say we can go right back to the beginning, we can see that the story hasn't changed, and we can see that the people who were alive to oppose it, to squash it, uh, the Roman Empire wanted nothing more than to get rid of the Christian movement. You can see this in, in history, and they were unsuccessful in doing that. There was a, certainly also a religious segment within Judaism that wanted to get rid of this new movement as well. We see that even in the book of Acts and in the Gospels themselves. And they couldn't do it either because the, 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 the crux of the issue was the person of Jesus of Nazareth and his resurrection from the dead. When you pick up the Gospels and you're looking at what they say about Jesus, you can get to a place where you're confident that they're reporting accurately. Yes, they're loaded with accounts of the miraculous. Yes, it's true. But uh, by, by standard evaluation as to how we look at history, we can build a really good case that they're accurate. The problem of miracles, well, that's our problem. <laughs> we say there's no such thing as miracles. You know, at Christmas time, there's no such thing as a virgin birth. So we try and whittle our way around the story. But this is the way that it was presented to us. This is what was preached to us. And this is what these people went to their graves for. And they did it in a hostile atmosphere. So the Bible, including the Gospels, they invite you to fact check them. And this is the curious thing about the Bible compared to the other monotheistic religions in the world, compared to Eastern uh, religious views in the world. The Bible, you have this, this odd presentation of God who comes into real space and time and history and who lives and who dies for real and who is allegedly raised from the dead like for real not some myth on mount olympus or something but the whole story is challenging you to fact check it and today we use that term a lot fact checking i don't think people honestly do a lot of fact checking i think we fact check what we want to be true. We go and find people who will tell us it's true, but that's not what the Bible does. The Bible presents itself amongst its friends and its foes. So it's challenging you to say, fact check me. Even the apostle Paul said, if, if Jesus has not been risen from the dead, then we are liars and our faith is useless and we are false witnesses about God. And these people went to their graves with the conviction above all things that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and they put their lives on the line for it because they most sincerely believed that it really happened and they claimed to be eyewitnesses to these events. So the Bible says, fact check me. And I encourage you to do that Push back on the things that you believe. Challenge the things that you believe, and you will see that the, that the gospel record will rise to the surface as being authentic and as being defensible as well. 
So it, this is not something that's been done over in a corner that, oh, well, we really want to believe it's true. And so what do we do? We, we listen to things. We watch things on the Internet. We listen to preachers and teachers who will tell us what we want to hear. And this, this helps persuade us that it's true. This is not what the Bible does. It is presented in a hostile atmosphere. And that's what you need to do. You need to push back on, on the things that you believe, whatever you may believe about things. And nowadays, you, people have all kinds of crazy beliefs about all kinds of things. Well, with the Bible, it's challenging you to fact check it. Now, when it comes to this question, what did Jesus believe about the Bible? You see, again, some startling things. Uh, first and foremost, Jesus accepted uh, what we call the Jewish canon of Scripture. Canon means uh, rule or standard. And Jesus accepted the very same books that the Jewish people of his day accepted. We call those books today, at least in the church setting, the Old Testament. This is what Jesus accepted as being Scripture, as being the Bible. The New Testament wasn't even written yet. When we read uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see the life of Jesus, and we kind of place ourselves back in time. Well, at that time, the New Testament wasn't even written, uh, but the Old Testament was. And this is what Jesus accepted as being the canon of Scripture, and he refers to this in many different ways. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples today, and just like our first two subjects, like you could spend weeks on this question. Uh, so I'm only picking a couple of little things to highlight for you, but I would encourage you, especially in this series and especially at Christmas time, get back into the Gospels. Get back into Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and read them. If you say, wow, I need a little bit of help, again, I, I encourage people in this church to watch the Chosen uh, TV series. It's free. You can stream it. Watch it. It is, it is a very well-produced uh, 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 look at the life of Jesus through the lens of the Gospels. Just an outstanding uh, job that they have done. Watch that as well, but get back into the Gospels. You want to know about Jesus? You want to know the things that he believed and the things that he taught and who he is? Get back into the Gospels. Here in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus has risen from the dead, you have one of the many post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And here he's going to appear to two people who are walking on the road to Emmaus, and uh, they're discussing amongst themselves what, what was going on, and uh, Jesus uh, uh, appears to them and starts to talk to them as if he's a complete stranger. And he says, well, what are you talking about while you're walking along? And they're sad, and they're discouraged because their, their leader uh, is dead. And their, their faces are downcast. One of them, we've got his name, Cleopas. And he asks Jesus, not knowing it's Jesus, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know what the things that have happened there in these days? Like, are you from Mars? Don't you know what happened in Jerusalem? This was a big deal. Jesus was crucified in the, at the Passover. He, he had quite a following. They actually got Pontius Pilate involved to get him crucified publicly without breaking the law and so on. So Jesus says, well, what things? Tell me about it. 
And they say, well, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, their Messiah. We talked about that over the last couple of weeks. And what is more, it is the third day since this took place. And some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb this morning. They didn't even find his body. And they came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but we don't know where Jesus is. We couldn't find him. And then he says to them, he's going to reveal his identity. How foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Where did the prophets speak it? In the Bible. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Where's that from? Well, Jesus thinks from the Bible. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about himself. Well, when he names Moses and when he names the prophets, He's naming two out of three of the major sections of the Bible's Old Testament at that time. And if you skip down to verse uh, 44, after he eats with them and proves to them that he's not some kind of ghost, he says to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible or uh, the Torah, as the Jews call it today, the prophets, which was another major section that they, they, uh, they would divide the Bible in three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the Psalms, as Jesus calls it here. So he talks about this lot of books as the canon of Scripture, and he's saying all of this is talking about me. So he accepted the standard Hebrew canon of scripture. This is important because there's a lot of books that are floating around at that time that he could have talked about that he never talked about. In the Catholic Bibles, you're going to see a section of books called the Apocrypha. Jesus never referred to it, never quoted from it, never referred to it at all. What does he refer to as the scripture? Well, the standard Hebrew canon that they all accepted as scripture. So that's, that's first and foremost and you see in the background there, that's a picture of a scroll of the book of Exodus, I think. I'm not sure how old it is. Maybe it's like 1,000 AD or something. But that's all in Hebrew. And that's not like the Bible that you read today, right? But that was like the Bible that Jesus would have read back in his day. And Jesus was fortunate because Jesus could read. A lot of people back then at that time could not read. And they, could, they didn't have Bibles like today, I have on this device, I have that, I have the Bible in any language I want, in any version I want, I can put it in my back pocket and take it with me everywhere. If I was in the first century in Jesus' day and I showed him this device, they would think I was an alien from another planet. And I can read. So back then, you're dealing with a very, very different time. You say, how did these people learn the Bible? From memory, when it was recited to them, 
when it was taught to them by a rabbi or a priest who had access to the Bible. It was pretty well reserved for those folks, and they would teach it to the people, and then the people would teach it to other people, and they would do it by memory. They didn't have chapter and verse like we do. We can say, you know, the preacher can say, go to Luke 24 and 44. That's not the way Jesus did it. Jesus did it like this. Give me the scroll. Here it is. When he walked into the synagogue and read from Isaiah chapter 61, he said, here, pull out the scroll and I'll go find it because he knows where it is. So uh, it's, a, it's a totally different time back then when you talk about the Bible of Jesus's day and, the, and what the people had access to, which was very, very little. Uh, but Jesus clearly accepts the Jewish canon of scripture, Make, makes no bones about it. Uh, second little observation here is that he believed that the scripture had a divine author. He believes that it's divinely uh, inspired. And so you can, uh, you can see this in a couple of places in the Gospel of John, for example. So John chapter 5, we, we were in this last week a little bit. And this is um, quite a confrontation that Jesus is having with the religious folks there because he has done a healing on the Sabbath day. He's healed a man who uh, was disabled for about 40 years and he rather effortlessly heals this man out in public and there's quite a stir because he does this on the Sabbath day. They're trying to challenge him. Who do you think you are? Who's, who's like, who, where, where is this coming from? And um, so Jesus in this whole conversation, John chapter five, uh, verse 37, and the father who sent me, because Jesus calls God his own personal father, the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me because they're challenging him. Who are you? Who's backing you? Who, who's your, your witness kind of thing? Because back then you, you needed that if you were going to teach something or preach something. And he says, well, the father is. God is mine. Who's yours? So it's quite a debate that he's having. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. That's rude of Jesus to say, but he says it anyway. Nor does his word, that's the Bible of their day, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures. What are the scriptures? Well, the Hebrew canon of the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament is the way that we term it. You study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Again, note his view of the scriptures. He's a very high uh, appreciation and view of the scripture as if it has a divine author. John chapter 10, you see this again after Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We looked at this last week and they try to stone him because the law of Moses says that you stone somebody, some, someone when they blaspheme. And they interpret his remarks as blasphemy. And so he says, uh, so the people say to him, we are not stoning you for any good work but be for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Watch Jesus' response. It is 
it is brilliant. It is a brilliant use of the scripture. He says to them, is it not written in your law? So where's your law? The Bible. Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. This is a citation from Psalm 82. It's not even the law of Moses. It's a psalm, and yet Jesus calls it law. As it, it have, I have not, has, does it not say there that God says, I have said you are gods? Now, in context, back there in the psalm, God is addressing the judges and the rulers of the day, and he says you are gods in the psalm. And the word in the Hebrew there is you are Elohim. And he uses that word Elohim there, uh, the psalmist does, to refer to these rulers and these religious judges back in the time of the psalms in Psalm 82. And this term is used, Elohim. Elohim is sometimes used for people in the Old Testament, rarely, but sometimes it's used. Most of the time it is used for God. Sometimes it's used to, to describe false gods. Just a word that meant God. It was not a, the personal name of God that we see in the Old Testament, but it's a word that meant God. And so he says, doesn't it say in your law, I have said you were gods? If he called them gods, those people back there, if he used that term, Elohim, with those people, to whom the word of God came, there's his appreciation for the scripture again. And the scripture cannot be broken then what about the one whom the Father has set apart as his very own? So uh, he's saying again, as we looked at last week, that he is of the same essence of God. Not just in a relational sense, but in an ontological sense, fancy word. And he says, so what about me then? If, he, if the term is used for those people back there, then what is the problem from a biblical sense of it being used toward me? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? What he's saying is that you have no biblical reason by your own Bible, by the scripture that cannot be broken, you have no biblical reason to say that this is not true of me. And back then, when you used the scripture, and you interpreted the scripture, and you applied the scripture correctly, you win the argument. And so Jesus here brilliantly does this with these people. And he says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And again, they try to seize him to stone him, but he escapes their grasp. Look at his appreciation of Scripture. It cannot be broken. This suggests that he believed that it had a divine author. Things that God does cannot be broken. So he's obviously appealing to this as being the inspired, authoritative, unbreakable word of God. He has an incredible appreciation for the Bible. His belief in the Bible is, 
is uh, that it is the word of God that is authoritative, that it is binding, that it is unbreakable. And when you survey the New Testament and you, you look at it as a whole and just starting with the Gospels, you are going to see Jesus goes all over the place when he uh, uh, quotes from the Old Testament, when he refers to things that take place in the Old Testament, he does so very, very rapidly and quickly. About 10% of the verses in the Gospels are references and quotes of things that happened in the Old Testament. So I'm going to put things on your screen here really quickly, and I'd encourage you to take little shots of this with your phone or something you're looking for a good Bible study, I'm about to give you one that will take you six months to do, okay? If you're looking for a good devotional series or something you want to study, this is going to take you six months if you do it right. Jesus quotes from or refers to 12 books, at least in our order, of the Old Testament. Uh, or actually, it would be 14 books in ours and not 12, because Kings and Chronicles back then were one book. In our uh, division, there are two books each. So technically, it's 14 books in our order. It's 12 in their order. He refers to the book of Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, the Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, Hosea, Jonah, Zechariah, and Malachi. Boom! And he does so at will. He pulls obscure passages and stories out at will when he's debating with people, when they're challenging him, when they're arguing with him. He is a master of the, of the Bible. And you say, well, that's, that's good for him. He wrote it. But back then, you have to understand, this is the way that people revered the Scripture. They memorized large chunks of the Scripture. And again, if they could, if they did have the luxury of being able to read, they rarely actually had the scripture in their hands. Not like us who have, you know, these devices and we don't even like we, we don't even know how to memorize scripture today. Some of us back then they memorized vast, vast chunks. And Jesus was a master at this. You can see him even at 12 years old. He's in the temple courts asking these people questions, these teachers questions. They're stunned by his knowledge, by his ability to understand the scripture. And not only that, but Jesus refers to all kinds of stories. And this is where you can get your devotional material for the next six months. All kinds of stories from the Old Testament. Some of them are really controversial today. He refers to them with no effort. He doesn't interpret them uh, with a little star. He doesn't say, well, I'm about to refer to you know, the book of Genesis here, but we all know that we shouldn't interpret the book you know, this way, and we've got to reinterpret. He doesn't do that at all. He just pulls story after story after story out. So the creation of Adam and Eve, Jesus believed in the creation of Adam and Eve. He quotes way back from Genesis chapter 2. What I'm about to tell you is going to be illegal in 15 years to read in the church. He made them male and he made them female. Jesus quoted that with reference to Adam and Eve. You say, that's strong to say it will be illegal. 
10 to 15 years, just saying that is probably going to get you in trouble in the church because of all of the, all of the new things that we're dealing with. with you know, there, now there's a difference between gender and biological sex, and you have a whole thing there. It's become very controversial. It's not controversial for Jesus. He quotes it. No problem. The murder of Abel by Cain. Again, that's old, old, old. That's Genesis chapter 4. He goes way back there. He quotes it. Noah's time and the global flood. He quotes it. Apparently, he believes that there was a global flood. No problem. He just uses it as a story, as an illustration. The corruption of Lot's day and the fire that came down from the sky. Remember what happened to Lot's wife? Jesus refers to it. What? He does. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, way back from the book of Genesis, he refers to them as being real people. Moses and the burning bush. Jesus referred to that story as well. Uh, the next slide. No, there it is. Moses and the manna that came from heaven. Jesus believed in it. Moses and the bronze serpent that he made. If people looked at the serpent, they would be healed. Jesus believed in it. David and the showbread. Curious little story as to how David and his men ate the bread that they were not supposed to eat. Jesus uses it as an illustration. Solomon and the queen of Sheba. Jesus believed they were real. Elijah, the widow and the famine, all kinds of miraculous things going on in that story. Jesus believed it was true. Naaman, the, the, the king and his healing of leprosy, Jesus refers to it. The murder of Zechariah, the son of a high priest, Jesus refers to it. Why? Because in their order, it was the last book of the Bible. And he's using, he, he uses that story as an illustration to say from the first to the last book of the Bible, you persecute the prophets. Jesus uses that story. Daniel and the abomination of desolation. From the book of Daniel, the prophetic picture from the book of Daniel, Jesus quotes it. Jesus believes it was real. Jonah and the whale. Jesus believed it was real. Jesus said, as Jonah was in the heart of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. He uses it as an illustration for his death, burial, and resurrection. What? No problem for Jesus. Jonah and the repentance of the Ninevites uses that too. No hesitation, no mythological or allegorical interpretation, no little star there. We don't believe this anymore. No. And above all things, he does not take the scripture for granted. Little tiny, little obscure story or major, major well-known story. He does not take it for granted at all. For him, it is scripture. For him, it is inspired and what really got Jesus into trouble is that Jesus believed that the scripture was about him. And this is what really, really got him into, into trouble, if I can use that term. So again, back to uh, Luke's gospel and Luke chapter 24, he says, these things are about me. Let me show you 
Let me show you from the law. Let me show you from the prophets. Let me show you from the writings. And he, he tries to explain to them how all of these things talk about him and point to him. Now today, in the, in the, the worldview of Judaism, and I'm Jewish, so I, I like to study this, the, the rabbis of today and the Jewish apologists today who oppose Christianity are not entirely dissimilar to those who opposed Jesus back in the first century. Not really. So for them today, they would say, Jesus is a liar, he is a deceiver, he is a false messiah, because God cannot be a man. You're worshiping a man. And they have all kinds of bizarre ways of understanding what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. And they take a passage out of the book of Numbers from uh, the, the prophet uh, Balaam, who said, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. They say, see, God is not a man. You're worshiping a man. You're wrong. Even though their own scriptures talk about a, mess a messianic figure, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the, the Savior of the world. Isaiah chapter 9, let's see how good you are. The, the, the M something. No, the M-I. No, the M-I-G. The mighty, the mighty what? His name shall be called wonderful. It's Christmas time. Counselor, the mighty blank. The mighty God. What? His name. So the Messiah, a person, is called the mighty God. That's in the Old Testament. So what Jesus does is he says, all of these things, they're talking about me. The Messiah, the Son of Man, who's referred to in the book of Daniel, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven that people will worship, that's talking about me, he says. That's what, that's what got him executed. The high priest tore his clothes and says, do we need to hear any more of this blasphemy? I don't even, he wants to plug his ears but the, their own scriptures are teaching this. And Jesus opens their minds, verse 45 of Luke 24, open their minds so they could understand the scriptures, so that they could see. Don't you see? All of this is pointing toward me. This is quite a bold statement, but this is what Jesus says. And then you see in the New Testament, this is what the disciples say. This is what the Apostle Paul says. This is what John writes. This is what James writes, the half-brother of Jesus. This is what Luke writes in the book of Acts. You see all these people preaching and teaching that the Old Testament scriptures refer to a person, and that person is Jesus, right up to his death, burial, resurrection from the dead, and second coming. They say all of it refers to Jesus. That is a very different way of interpreting the Bible of Jesus' day. But this is what Jesus did. And not only that, but Jesus promised 
what we call today anyway, the New Testament. He promised this. So if you look at some of his, his beliefs, some of his preaching, at the end, just before he's crucified, you see him tell the people, uh, John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. I love that way they translate that. Uh, parakletos there in the Greek language, one, one like a twin. He will give you another advocate. Uh, in French, we say avocat, lawyer, right? He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him and he lives with you. He's talking to the apostles there. He lives with you and will be in you. How? What will that look like? Verse 25, verse 26. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will remind you of everything I have said to you. He is conferring on those people the reality that the Spirit of God is going to teach them and they in turn are going to teach others. How? By what we read in the New Testament. All written by eyewitnesses and firsthand information about Jesus and about the beginning of the church. John chapter 15, verse 26. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you must also testify. How would they do that? By writing the New Testament. For you have been with me from the beginning. And you see clearly when you read the New Testament that the, the authors are referring to their own writings as being scripture. Uh, 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 Peter talks about Paul and says that, that there are people who try and distort what Paul says as they do the other scriptures. Implication, he put Paul's work on a par with the Old Testament scripture. And Paul did the same thing to Peter and the, the apostles themselves, the firsthand eyewitnesses to the events in question. And even Luke, who works with eyewitnesses, they are testifying, fulfilling the very words of Jesus here in John chapter 15. But at the end of the day and what it means for you and me, which... <laughs> Whether you talk about what Jesus believed about God, whether you talk about what he believed about himself, whether you talk about what he believed about the Bible, whether you talk about what he believed about politics and religion and taxes and all of these issues, he always does one thing. He brings it back to him. Always. And he points everyone back to him and he pushes for a decision. He pushes for a reaction. And for Jesus, either all of you or none of you, but not halfway. For Jesus, he says things like, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to give up your life. 
If you want to follow me, you have to die to live. If you want to live, you're going to die. If you want to die, you're going to live. And he says things like this. And he calls people to a a radical decision where he becomes first front and center of people's lives. And this is quite unique when you talk about the Christian faith. Please understand me. Uh, uh, religions that teach moral ethics and, and high views and uh, good relationships with people. There's nothing wrong with that. That's all good. There's a lot of good things in all of these different religious views. But what you have in the Christian faith goes beyond that. You can be a good person. That doesn't make you a Christian. You can be a disciplined person. You can be a really like pious religious person you can look perfect to everybody that doesn't make you a christian that doesn't make you good enough to be saved that doesn't put you on a par with god so you know religion is do this pray this amount of times per day treat your neighbor this way treat yourself this way and in the end things are going to go well for you you know if you do good Good's going to come your way. The universe will applaud you, whatever. This is not what the Christian faith teaches. The Christian faith says all those things are good, but they're not good enough. You'll never be good enough because the Christian faith is about Jesus. It's about whether or not he is the God of your life. And then he'll turn you into a good person. It'll take you the rest of your life to learn to be like him. But the question that Jesus always ends up asking is, what are you going to do with me? What are you going to do with me? The scriptures point to me. God is pointing to me. All of these things are driving you to make a decision about him. And I think for many of us, we don't realize what he's calling us to. He's calling us to everything is about him. To he takes over and he takes the throne of our lives and we surrender to him that he may live through us and change us and transform us. And that's a really, really big decision. And Jesus even said like, Consider the cost. You know, if you're going to build a tower, you better make sure you've got enough money. You better make sure you've got enough resources. Because if you try and build that tower and you run out of money and resources, everybody's going to turn around and laugh at you and say, look at this person, didn't have enough money, didn't have enough resources to build. They didn't count the cost. And Jesus says, you need to count the cost when you come to me. And I think there are some of us, and what happens when we... When we uh, are part of church all the time. We hear, it's repeated to us. The message is repeated to us over and over again. We start to get a little bit numb to it. We start to get a little bit uh, uh, sleepy toward it. We start to underappreciate. And what happens is that God starts to move away from the center of our lives. And he's off in a margin somewhere. And then he's off in a margin more somewhere. And then it's sort of like, well, I guess I'm a Christian, but I'm not really sure. And I think that uh, we need to recover, especially at Christmas time. 
the, what Jesus is really, really calling us to. Uh, so we're going to conclude and just have a word of prayer here. I've gone a little bit long. So Sean and, um, and Rose, if you could come to the platform and just play something in the background as we pray for people. And, uh, and I'm just going to conclude today and then you can pick up your kids. Uh, but I really think that there are those of you you're watching uh, today live in person. You're watching live uh, through the camera. You're at home. And there's a third audience that's going to watch this or listen to this later and you're going to process this content later. But I think that there are those of you, and you know in your heart that you've slipped away. You've, you've gone astray, Isaiah said. We, who, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And we've gone our own way, he says. But the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And maybe that's you today, and you say, I've, I've gone, I'm like that sheep who's gone astray, and I've realized that I'm paying, oh my gosh, am I paying the price for my being astray? You know, you could sit and tell me a story of all the trouble you're in because you've gone astray from God. Can I just tell you, he, he's the great shepherd, and he wants to bring you back, and he wants, to put him, he wants you to put him back in the front and in the center He's not saying, oh, you just go, just go and leave. I don't want you anymore. You've gone astray. I'll, I'll go and I'll go for those who love me. No, God is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. God goes for those who are astray. Maybe you're, you say, I've strayed away. I used to be passionate. Jesus used to be the center, but he's no longer. And I want to put him back. Let me pray for you. Father, I've, I pray for each one who's in the room today. Lord, there, there are probably a handful in here, and they say, that's my story. There are people who are watching, and that's their story. And uh, Lord, in many ways, it's all of us. And we thank you for the forgiveness of God offered through Jesus. And we say it again, God, forgive us. God, have mercy on me, a sinner and come into my life and be, be my God again. Be the center of my life again. Rebuild my life again. I've made so many mistakes. Rebuild it again, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You can just pray that simple prayer. You can pray it now in your seat. You can pray it at home. But God knows the sincerity of your heart. It's the closest thing that we have in the Gospels, when that man said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We pray to that end together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the Lord bless you today. Uh, if we can turn those lights on so people can see and exit safely on their way out. Uh, remember, you can give uh, either in person uh, with cash check or electronics today online. Remember to reserve your seat for uh, December the 12th and the movie that we will be playing. It's probably going to fill up fast. God bless you. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. And remember to pick up your kids over in number 11. God bless you today.